the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. We are the captains of our own ship. We are the ones who pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. I'm sure you've heard those statements before, if not have used them. But we are totally dependent upon God's mercy, as we'll see next on Abounding Grace. Everyone has ideas as to how they live and why they live. But really, it's God's idea that we need to be holding to. Our total dependence upon God's mercy is the subject of our time today as we look once again at Romans chapter 9. Taking in the full scope of verses 1 through 18, we are going to explore just how dependent we really are upon God. And the more we understand and realize this dependence and live upon it, the better our lives actually get. With more, here's Pastor Gary on today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. If there was ever a passage of Scripture that should make the stoutest heart to tremble, this is certainly it. We read here that God does not, as He commonly is pictured in today's fairy tale Christianity, Love everyone equally the same. He has a special people known to him from the foundation of the world, chosen with no regard of personal worth or merit or any choice they would make. It was his mercy. In mercy, he determined to show mercy upon those who deserved otherwise. And as for the rest, sometimes called the non-elect, the reprobate, the wicked, as for these, he didn't simply withhold grace. It was an active, judicial, deserved hardening of their hearts against the gospel. And it never says anywhere here or in anywhere in scripture, God permitteth it but God doeth it. Now, many aren't going to walk with God this far. It's kind of like Jesus when he gave the bread of life discourse. When he told the Jews, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, or you have no no life in you. Many of disciples drew back, and they quit following him. You you might say, well, those are two separate things. Well, they are two different issues, but the point is the same. And that is, when God speaks, we are supposed to listen and be humbled beneath his word. And we can study all kinds of reasons why we don't like that kind of God, for I'm going to choose my own version of God. But his word is so far beyond our capacity. That's why James said in chapter 1, verse 21, 
We are to receive his word with meekness, humility, trembling, not questioning, not asking. In fact, we need to let what God says chase away all our doubts and silence our questions. We don't need to go any further than he goes. Those who are hardened deserve it. And everyone who is alive deserves to be hardened. So no one can complain that God is unjust. People who receive grace, they didn't deserve it. And it's not a question of justice for them. It's a question of mercy, which is a free gift of God, which no man can lay any claim to. It's all of mercy. Now, one of the things the Lord does here, like a dentist, he gets out his big old drill and he goes right to the root of our contagion, our decay. That is what pride does to the soul. It decays it. It makes it stink and fester. He says, I'm going to challenge you. And notice Paul is writing this to Christians. I'm going to challenge you. Will you be humble before God's word? Will you recognize that you have no good but what comes from him? None. Will you say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.10, I labored valiantly, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God in me. He did it. I don't have a crumb of good except from him. Will I bow before his righteous hardening of his enemies? Men have screamed throughout history over these declarations. Pelagius, Servetus, Arminius, and of course today the postmodernists. They don't care in the church because you can always shift the meaning of words to make them say what you want. Calvin said something interesting here. He said, men are always readier to charge God with injustice than they are to accuse themselves of blindness. Men are always readier to accuse God, to judge God of being unrighteous than they are to accuse themselves of blindness. So when men resist God's word, what happens? The questions start tumbling out, the doubts. Like a poison sewer, it ruptures and everything just goes everywhere. Questions like, well, what place is left for man's will? Or how is it fair for God to raise a Pharaoh only to destroy him? Or why even try to reach the lost? Or why would God harden anyone? Paul here doesn't really answer any of those questions. He doesn't try to defend God. He lets God be his own defender. He just simply quotes scripture. Now it's interesting. He just simply quotes scripture. Why? Because we either receive God's word or we worship an idol. Jesus asked the 12 men, are you also going to go away? And then he said, I know I've said some tough things. Jesus spoke of many of the doctrines we've been uh, discussing here in Romans 9 when he said, No one can come to me except the Father who sent me drag him. Or my word has no place in you. You're not of mine. The twelve were watching 
as thousands of people just kind of melted away. And Jesus said, will you go away too? Peter stated, what we have to, what you and I have to say before this passage here. Lord, where else are we going to go? Notice Peter didn't say, Lord, we understand you perfectly because they didn't. He just said, there's nowhere else to go. Nowhere else to go than where? God's word. So we may not understand everything. I know I certainly don't. We may not have all our questions answered. We may tremble, and well, we should. But our heart attitude needs to be what Peter's was. Lord, where else are we to go? Is that your heart attitude, by the way? Just even in general. Life's not treating you like you want. Wait a minute. Maybe God is treating me like Pharaoh. Then he is a godly man. Or maybe I am a godly man. And he's treating me more like Job. Well, I'm really just tired of all this thinking. Tired of the struggles. Tired of always being brought back to his word. Give me something sweeter. Give me a bag of cotton candy. Give me a song so I can just forget my troubles. Peter had it right. I don't have to understand because life is not about me grasping things. Where else shall I go but to you? You and you alone have the words of life. You have them, Lord. I don't have to fully understand them. I just know. You have them. So let that be our spirit as we approach this passage today. Now, beginning in verse 14, Paul very well knew, Hey, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. He knew this was going to cause trouble. Because whenever people hear that, it's like, wait a minute, God can't hate people. That's not a Walt Disney world. That's not fair. So they try to haul God to court or those who won't follow the twisting as we saw last week. Esau, I just loved less, which simply won't work here. So twice in verse 14, Paul shudders at the thought of there being any unrighteousness with God. Even his selection of the preposition, is there unrighteousness with Para in Greek has the idea of near, aside, with the very thought of there being any kind of injustice near to the holy God. Paul says, perish the thought. That is blasphemy. Of course, in verse 14, he uses that very strong phrase, which is translated in the King James, God forbid, may it never be, or perish the thought, a very strong negation in Greek, and basically it expresses an abhorrence. There cannot be any unrighteousness with God. There may be blindness on our part, and we can never mount into the counsels of God, but there is no unrighteousness with Him. What He does is just because He does it. His actions are the definition of what is right and good 
and pure. So we have two non-negotiable truths of grace presented to us here. In verse 14, following from the argument that we looked at last week, and that is God does not differentiate between men. We saw that in Jacob and Esau and Isaac and Ishmael. He differentiates between men so that his purpose, according to election, stands. He doesn't consider parentage, bloodline, works, worth in choosing. He has an eye only to his own settled purposes that you and I will never be privy to. So one of the first marks of piety is to say, God, you are God, I'm not, so I'm going to put my hand over my mouth. Second, God is righteous in doing things this way. It is blasphemous to ascribe to God anything but the highest perfection of righteousness, like Abraham confessed in Genesis 18.25, when he said, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Of course he will. The very thought that he wouldn't throws the whole universe upside down. But we need to remember, God is the sovereign judge. And he does by all men, by you and by me, according to his righteous will and his eternal counsels and his wisdom. And he does not take us into that counsel. He does not. What he does tell us is to humble us and elevate his grace to us. By the way, that's the reason why these doctrines of election and reprobation and God-loving some and hating others have caused such a firestorm because they attack this one area of man's pride. We must reserve something for man, man's choosing, or we can't have seeker-friendly movements. We must reserve some room for man's goodness or man really is dead in sin and then we'll have to believe in total depravity and God forbid that we believe that because then we must believe in efficacious sovereign grace and then we will have to believe in particular redemption and God forbid that we believe in those things. We have got to reserve some place for man. For his working, for his preparations, for his will. So many draw back from this. And I admit these truths are that angels are, are that angels, when they look into them and hear them proclaimed in the church, I'm sure they bow their heads with awe and majesty of God. But we can't neglect God's word just because it may pinch us. If God gives us his word, it's ingratitude to say, I'm just not going to look into this. Now, it's also presumptuous to say, I'm going to go beyond it. But it is ingratitude not to look into it and ignore it. He says in verse 15, a very, very simple statement. This is his only refutation of the charge. Is there unrighteousness with God? For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Turn, if you will, to Exodus 33. The context here is determinative of our understanding of the verses we're going over. Moses has erected the tabernacle, 
and the glory of cloud appeared at the door, verse 9. Verse 10, the glory cloud of God's majesty entered the tabernacle. Verse 12 of Exodus 33, and Moses said unto them, See you say unto me, bring up this people, and thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name. And thou hast also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way that I may know thee, and I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. And he, that is the Lord, said, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. And he said unto him, If your presence go not with me, Carry us not up hence, for well in shall it be known here that I and thy people found grace in thy sight. Is it not that in thou goest with us, so shall we be separated, and I and thy people from all these people that are on the face of the earth? Now a little bit of commentary before I continue to read this. The tabernacle was built. The glory cloud entered entered in. Moses said, God, you are near us. You told me I have to lead the people into the promised land. It's too difficult. You've not told me who you are going to raise up to help me. And God said, I'm going to go with you. Moses said, okay, show me your glory. This is what I need. I need to see your power. I need to see your majesty. I need to see your magnificence so that I can be encouraged to continue in this path. So the Lord, in verse 17, said to Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. And he said, I beseech thee. So Moses asked him again, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now, please note, Moses has asked here for a lot. Lord, I want you to go with us because we are your people. I want you to show me your glory, Lord. I want you to show me your glory, Lord. I want you to show me your glory. Now, Moses was a faithful man. He was a faithful servant of God. Did God answer his request because he was faithful? No. That was the whole point of the passage. He said to Moses, I will do this because you have found favor or grace in my sight. And then he said... I'm going to proclaim my name to you. Now, whenever God proclaims his name, he means who he is. There aren't any peripheral features. So we can't think of God's sovereignty like a toenail you lose and it's okay. A lot of people do that. Oh, well, you know, it's in the Bible, but it's kind of like a nose hair. Just pull it out. You no longer have to worry about it. It's not there. God said, this is my name. 
And what is his name? Verse 19. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. God says, that is my name. You cannot take that away and let that sink into your minds just here for a minute. Exodus chapter 24. Moses, who was going to be hid in the cleft of the rock, He was going to see something of God's back parts, which of course is purely figurative. God doesn't have any back parts. But the idea is God was going to preach a sermon to him to tell him a little bit more of who he is. But here he told Moses, I'm not going to do this for you because you deserve it. I'm going to do this because you have found grace in my sight. And as for Israel, let's reflect on them over the last six months. I'm going to be faithful to them. I'm not going to be faithful to them because they deserve it. This is going to be purely of my sovereign, uncontrolled, except by my will, my sovereign mercy to those whom I will show mercy. My compassion to those whom I will show compassion. What needs to grip us by these words in Exodus 33 is that God said, My name is Sovereign Mercy and Grace. That is my name. And that's not the only part of God's name. But here when we issue a covenant, salvation, privileges, and grace, it's as if God says, You need to understand something, Moses, right up front. This is why I'm letting you into fellowship with me. It's not because you have done anything that somehow warrants my bestowing this grace upon you. It is that I have chosen in my own purposes and according to my own will to love and to show you more intimate favor and fellowship with me. And as for my people, it is purely of my grace. God's sovereignty in election and salvation is therefore not a peripheral feature. Well, you can preach the gospel, but you can't preach sovereign mercy. Not true. That's a false gospel. God says it's a false gospel. If you do not preach the God who shows mercy upon whom he will show mercy, and the God who hardens whom he will harden, you are not preaching the gospel. Oh, yes, it will be because what we learn from these verses is that every single one of us, even if we are Moses and not one of us in here is, even if we are all Job's, which none of us are like Job, even if we were Daniel's or Noah's and were not, none of us are even close. God sets these men up and says, I've done such wonders in them. But even if they were still here, I would still obliterate this people. So understand, if we have any taste of God's mercy and of his love and his goodness, it's not because God says, your family deserves this. Your family line has been so good for so long. And you've read so many books. You're so intelligent. And you're such a nice person. I need you on my team. No, God says every single person from Moses, Joshua, Job, 
Daniel, Noah. To the least, everybody deserves to be excluded, condemned, hardened, and damned by me forever. But instead, by mercy and by grace and my compassion, I'm going to reach out to the undeserving and save them. Beloved, that's the gospel. The gospel is not, hey, Jesus has done this great thing. And you just really need to make the decision to follow him. And he will complete your life and he'll make you feel good. Some of those things have elements and shadows of truth in them. But at the best, it is distant. That's why there is shallow piety in the church. Where does that come from? From shallow conversions. Pseudo-piety, pseudo-conversions. We don't preach these things anymore like they preached them in the old days, like they preached them in the Reformation, like Augustine preached. God alone makes men good. You have nothing. I have nothing. It's not, as he says in verse 16, the very next verse, it's not of the man who wills or the man who runs. It is God who shows mercy. Well, that's all the time we have today. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. If you'd like to review today's broadcast, we would invite you to contact us for a copy of the program. They're available for just $5. Mention today's date and we'll send a CD your way. Here's where to write to us. PMB number 402, 1484 Pollard Road. That's in Los Gatos, California. The zip code is 95032. Again, that's PMB number 402-1484, Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California, 95032 is that address. Our phone number, if you'd rather call, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. Our website is reformedheritage.org. And if you'd like to join us for worship, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. We meet at the Lone Hill Church on 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions at our website, reformedheritage.org. Or again, call 408-866-5607. Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you next time we get together as we continue our studies in God's Word. Until then, may Christ be your abounding grace. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.